0: Sing singing that song and I thought, those are some bold words. And is it true? Is it true of me and is it true of you? And I trust it is, beloved, that you would rather have Jesus in than be a king of a vast domain. We can all pretty much say that, I think, because we're never gonna be a king of a vast domain in all likelihood. But how about the second part? I'd rather have Jesus than be caught in sins. Let me read it, sorry. 379. I'd rather have Jesus than be held in sin's dread sway? How about that one? Is that true? Would you rather have Jesus than be ensnared and enslaved in sin? I think that's the one that we struggle with the most because we may not have lots and lots of money. We may not have Uh, the applause of men to struggle with and all the pride that comes with that. We probably, like we said, we aren't going to be the king or the queen of a vast domain. And so, of course, we take Jesus. But when it really comes to being ensnared and enslaved in our own sin and loving it too much, I think when we sing, I'd rather have Jesus than be in sin's Dread sway. I think oftentimes we need to confess that we don't act that way, do we? We don't act that way because we are still in this flesh and we struggle with it. But God is so gracious, He's so merciful, He's so forgiving that He gives us Jesus and He gave us Jesus when we were still enemies of Jesus when we were still yet sinners, Christ shows his love for us and that he died for us. Isn't that good news? That is the best news, beloved. And we've seen God be gracious to Jonah uh, throughout his ministry, even in the midst of his obedience. And so uh, we want to conclude this morning uh, looking at the book of Jonah in chapter four. And so I invite you Um, to pray with me and ask for the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hymns that have been given to us uh, over the course of the history of your church, and that we could sing them and we can be encouraged by them. And, And as we prayed, Father, most importantly, you have given us your living word. And we have it before us, and we are able to read your word and what you would communicate to us. And we have been doing that, Father, over the last few weeks in the book of Jonah. And uh, we have been strengthened and blessed by it, I trust. And I ask that, even in this final chapter, that you would help us, Father, to hear, um, to accept uh, the admonishment that is here, to be challenged, um, by what is written, and ultimately uh, that we would just find a great comfort and rest in you. Uh, ask you to bless it now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we saw how through the preaching of God's message, this is in Jonah 3, God transformed the city of Nineveh. Uh, a great Gentile city, as we saw, came to know and experience what Jonah and Israel had taken for granted, and that is that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. They had taken that for granted, Jonah and Israel, and now Nineveh got to experience that Now that God acted in saving Nineveh, which is what he sent Jonah to proclaim that message, ultimately to redeem them, uh, this city considered to be an enemy of Israel, the question now in chapter 4 is, how is Jonah going to respond to that? Had Jonah learned the lesson that God was trying to teach him and had he taken it to heart? outwardly, it appeared that he did, right? Because he went, even though he disobeyed outwardly. The second time around, Jonah obeyed and he arose and he went to Nineveh like God told him and he preached the message there. But did the heart of Jonah line up with his outward behavior and did it align with God's will? So did the outward line up with the inward, word and the short answer is no, it didn't. In chapter 4, God is going to address the heart of his servant Jonah. Jonah had to learn to submit to God's word outwardly, as we all do. We, We are to be a different people, and our outward life should manifest a difference and a contrast to the world. There should be something different about the way we outwardly behave. Not, not in the sense of wearing funny-looking hats and funny-looking dresses and looking really peculiar and weird by our outside dress, but I'm talking just morally, the way we live, how we conduct ourselves, our manner of speech, our our manner of way we entertain ourselves in the world, like all of these things should outwardly look different and we should be obeying God's word. But that also needs to align with a heart from which those things flow. And in the case of Jonah, they didn't align. And so God is going to make sure that Jonah not only learns outward behavior to God's law, but he also needs to learn that true submission to God's sovereign will really begins in the heart because it is the heart that God ultimately evaluates. The scripture says that in Genesis with Noah that all man goes astray in their heart Continually, right? Continually, man goes astray in his heart. Uh, from The scriptures also say how from their youth, uh, men go away in their heart. And Jesus addresses the heart repeatedly in his ministry, for it is out of the heart that evil and adulteries and fornications and such arise. The heart of man is desperately wicked, Who can know it? This is what God's word says about the heart of man. And when the Lord sent Samuel, you'll remember to evaluate the sons of Jesse to find a replacement for Saul. He, He sends him to choose a replacement and Eliab comes before Samuel, one of the sons of Jesse, and Samuel looks at his appearance And he thought, surely this is the man God has chosen. He looks outwardly. This has to be him, Eliab. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. And so ultimately, Samuel is sent to find David, whose God word. God's word says David was a man after God's own heart who will do all his will. So it's the heart that God cares about. So Jonah needed to examine his heart in response to the salvation of Nineveh. Jonah's response to the revival of Nineveh was really the exact opposite of what you would think it would be. Rather than satisfaction and joy in what God had done, you see here that Jonah reacts with displeasure and anger in his heart. And you can often tell how you react to things will often tell you volumes about your heart. One commentator said, how we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. Don't you find that true? How you react to something really reveals a lot about your heart, even more than how you act. I I know as as a child growing up, all of us, I'm sure, from the earliest age, how we reacted when we were told no, right? It just was, no, you don't get what you want, and maybe you throw a two-year-old little tantrum, or three-year-old, and you cry, and it's just revealing something about the immaturity of that heart of that child, and unfortunately, we do that even (laughs) as older people as well. Our hearts are still struggling and and we manifest it in our reaction to things. And so here, God's addressing the heart of his servant Jonah. He has to learn that submitting his heart, he needs to learn to submit his heart to the sovereign will of God, not just his outward behavior. And so we're going to break it down into three sections, okay? Number one, we'll see Jonah is angry that God showed mercy to Nineveh. So this is where his heart is revealed. One to four, he is angry that God showed mercy. We also see Jonah's heart revealed in verses five to nine in that he is angry that God destroyed the plant. And so we'll talk about what that revealed. And number three, Jonah then, God's final lesson, is to remind Jonah that God is sovereign over mercy and judgment, and that's what we really need to understand in our hearts, that God is sovereign over mercy and judgment. And so what you'll notice if you look at chapter 4, and we'll read it here in a second, but you'll look at each of these sections in verses 1 to 4, 5 to 9, and 10 to 11, And what you'll notice is that each of those sections in verse 4, 9, and 11, they actually end with really what is a penetrating question posed by God to Jonah. No answer is given by God. It's just a question, and the question is aimed really at Jonah's heart. It's forcing Jonah to examine his reaction and correct his attitude toward God's will. Okay, so it's one of those, it's just, he's not gonna answer the question for Jonah, he's just gonna ask it. And the whole purpose here in this final chapter is for Jonah and for us and for Israel to think about our reaction to God's sovereign will. Ponder it and see if your heart is in the right place, okay? So let's hear God's word and then we'll look at it. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Three penetrating questions, and let's explore them. The first one, he's addressing this heart issue of Jonah and his anger that God showed Mercy to Nineveh. And we know that's the issue because verse 1 says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So Nineveh repents of their sin, God relents from the disaster, and this really, really made Jonah exceedingly angry. Literally, the translation of the words are, It was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. So Jonah is not just frustrated or discouraged by the outcome of his preaching. You could say Jonah is fuming with anger. Think of that emoji on your cell phone, all red faced and the smoke blowing out of his nostrils, right? He's mad and he's angry. And you have to wonder, as Jonah is outwardly doing what God called him to do in that he's preaching 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, you have to wonder if secretly he hoped that the judgment of God would fall upon Nineveh in 40 days, right? So he's preaching, judgment is coming, but inwardly he's not preaching because he wants them to repent, he's preaching because he wants God's judgment to come in 40 days. He knows God is gracious and merciful. He knows God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and that God relents from disaster. But he knows that it could be otherwise um, for Nineveh that they would actually experience that rather than his judgment He knows he wants God not to act as God, but to act as Jonah wants him to act. Jonah wanted God to act in accordance with Jonah's will for God. I can't tell you how much sin is wrapped up in that thought. God, I want you to act according to my will for you. God, act in the way that I want you to act. Believe or do what I want you to do. Serve me and my purposes, God. And this is Jonah struggling with this, and so he's angry. And so when the result comes, Jonah is unprepared to accept it because it's not the way he wanted it to go. So he's burning with anger. Nineveh repented and God relented what a tragedy for Jonah. Jonah already tried to stop God from doing it. Remember, we saw that in chapter 1. He was afraid that God was going to save them. He didn't want God to have that freedom to show mercy. This is what he goes on to pray here in verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country Apparently, he had expressed this fear to God the first time around while in Israel. And apparently, God already made his plan known to Jonah, because Jonah says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so he had already talked about this to God, and God told him he's to go and, and Jonah saying in this prayer here, this is exactly what I said, oh God, would happen. This is why I went to Tarshish. And we know that Jonah repented of that rebellion from chapter 2, and he submitted outwardly to God's will to go to Nineveh, but he still holds this unsubmissive attitude toward God's will for Nineveh. God didn't share the same anger toward Nineveh that Jonah had. And that was something Jonah had a hard time coming to terms with. He wanted God to judge them, but God determined to show them mercy. Now, if you want to turn there, you can to Exodus 34, verse 6 to 9. I'm going to read it, but, but this is the passage that Jonah is quoting from. And this just makes it more clear that Jonah did not want to submit to the sovereignty of God to show mercy or judgment. And Jonah wanted it his way. And the reason I say that is because when you you look at Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, and you see the context, there's really two things that are being described here about God. The first one, which is the one that Jonah wants to keep for himself and withhold from Nineveh is this, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you stop there and Jonah's thinking, I want that. I want that for myself. Israel has that for themselves. This is good. This is a good thing that God and who he is. But it's the second part of verse 7 that he wants for Nineveh. Because it also says of God, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so Jonah is angry that God decided to apply the first part of forgiveness to Nineveh and withhold the second part from them. This is what is making Jonah so mad, that God would forgive, that God would have steadfast love for them, that God would show mercy and grace to these Ninevites, while God, you're also one who doesn't clear the guilty and visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is what you should have done to Nineveh, God. I'll take the first part. Give Nineveh the second part. This is his problem. So bothered by God's grace and mercy and sovereign will for Nineveh that he actually says at the conclusion of his prayer in verse 3, back in Jonah 4, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. Rather than seeing the character of God so awesomely displayed in the salvation of Nineveh and God's mercy put on display, Jonah could not see past his own anger about it that he would rather die than to live. He's so mad that he turns his anger against himself. This is how upset he is. God, if it's going to be like this, I'd rather just die. I can't make sense of the world anymore. It's not worth living. You show mercy where I think there should be judgment. God, where is justice in the world? I can't, I can't live like this. I mean, this is, how, this is how mad he is. Now, it's tempting for us to look at Jonah's response here and condemn him for it and i and you and i hear some of you like snickering when he says that and i do the same thing i'm like wow right it's really tempting to look at jonah and to say man this guy's off his hinges he's angry at the salvation of people and then we can say in our hearts and we'd say man i i would never respond that way i would never i would never be upset at the salvation of people that's, tr- that's the right response. You shouldn't be. Neither should I. But, I. but let's show a little humility here in the sense of before we jump all, all over Jonah, I mean, just stop for a moment and consider what your response might be, let's say, if you were sent to preach the gospel to ISIS, Taliban, Al Qaeda, a ruthless terrorist nation or a group of people who just the day before were raping, murdering, pillaging, and executing your fellow believers and your family through beheadings and all the stuff that goes with it. And God saves them, or maybe Maybe God chooses to save a person, maybe not on a political level, but let's just say there's a person in your life that was abusive to you, harmful, mean, vindictive, angry, and the like. Hurt you physically in some ways in the past and God saves them and now they repent of their sin against God which includes sins committed against you God forgives them shows them mercy shows them grace they were your enemies and now they are calling you family and you will be sitting together with them at the table of the Lord, and worshiping God as one in perfect unity and love forever. How might you respond? How might you feel in your heart about that? You might second guess God's sovereign decision and question whether they should have received the same mercy that you received. After all, look at all the wickedness they have done and how they were set on destroying me. And so we have a hard time grasping that kind of mercy and grace. We have a hard time thinking, how can God's grace be so glorious and so magnificent that it can reach down to save the most vilest sinner I personally know. We struggle with it because we tend to think of ourselves as more deserving of knowing God than others, don't we? We do. While the reality is that we are no more worthy of knowing God and his grace and mercy Than the most notorious sinner in the world. You see, grace is beautiful. It's a beautiful gospel truth that God does not give you what you deserve and, in fact, gives you what you don't deserve grace and mercy. And it's personally cherished by believers because it should be, it's rich. But it is also a truth that we struggle to understand because at the end of the day, it puts us on par before God with the most vilest sinner we know. Can God save a person like that? They must be beyond the reach of God's grace. And so, this is a struggle Joan is having. And it's a struggle the early church had, isn't it true? Isn't it true when the Apostle Paul was saved? Remember, when he's saved and then he's coming to per- go before the church, what does the early church say? They look at Paul first Ananias. Ananias looks and God says, "I want you to go to find the Apostle Paul. Ananias says, "Lord, Have't you seen how evil he is? Don't you know, God, that he's going to destroy your children? What do you mean, go to the Apostle Paul?" and then God says, "Go." His chosen instrument of mine. Then, when he does go and he's saved, and then Apostle Paul comes before the church. Acts tells us that they're afraid of him, and they don't want to go to him, and they don't want to be with him. He's the one that is throwing people in prison, and he's he's punishing and persecuting children. And so, even the early church, they were afraid initially of Paul because he was such a sinner. And so there is no wonder to me that Paul had to remind the church after they finally accepted him that Paul becomes a preacher of the grace of God like no other. And in, in fact, he says in Ephesians 2, 4-7, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, notice how he's all including himself here, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying we all need the grace of God and I myself Included, he says, the chief of sinners, he calls himself in another place. And so the point being, as I looked at this chapter, I thought we are more like Jonah than we like to admit. I I am more like Jonah than I'd like to admit. More self-righteous than I'd like to admit. More selfish, more unforgiving than I want to believe about myself. This is why we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that God doesn't give up on Jonah or me or you, beloved. It is not better for you to die than to live, Jonah. And so you just need to understand my grace better and my wisdom in that I show it to whom I will. Take comfort in that, Jonah, And so Jonah, who still belongs to God, God now is going to reveal Jonah's heart to him so that he can see his sin and the foolishness of his anger. And he does that by posing this simple question. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? He's asking Jonah, whether his own judgment on what has transpired was correct. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Are you judging these things correctly, Jonah? And notice, again, no response on the part of Jonah. He's left silent. He has to reflect on his thoughts and judge his heart in these matters as we do. God does not need to defend his actions before man. It is man that needs to evaluate his response to what God has done. And it is gracious of God not to strike Jonah down on the spot. So many times we ourselves have been spared the judgment of God when we raise our voice, and he does that here for Jonah. Jonah's lesson isn't over, though. So God exposes his anger. Is it right that I should not show mercy when I choose to. And Jonah has no response. God permits him to go on to teach him that not only does God have the right to show mercy to whom he will, but he also has the sovereign right to destroy whom he will. This is the opposite side of the coin. God has the right to show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy And God has the sovereign right to judge whomever he wants to judge. This is the point he's going to make to Jonah. And so you'll notice here, mercy and judgment belong to God. Verse 5, this is where it goes on. Jonah becomes angry that God destroys this plant. Verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city, so this is after his heart examination here, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so rather than staying in Nineveh and watching the transformation completely unfold, Jonah... He's done with his mission, he sets out of the city, and he heads east, and he makes his shelter, a booth probably like they would have made from the Feast of Booths in Leviticus 23, 40 to 42, a little hut made from limbs and branches, and Jonah sits under it in the shade, hoping against hope that God would change his mind. But it is becoming clear to Jonah as he sits in his little booth and watches Nineveh, that things are changing. People are repenting. God did not bring judgment upon Nineveh. And so Jonah is beginning to see that God's plan is very different than his own. God would not ultimately bring judgment no matter how much Jonah wanted him to. He would relent. And so God sees Jonah's heart and his situation under this little makeshift shelter in the heat of the Mesopotamia. Daily maximum temperatures could be 110 degrees in the hot season. And so he shows compassion to Jonah, and here's what God does for Jonah. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So we don't know what kind of plant it was. Ivy, castor oil, some say a gourd plant which is like something that bears cucumbers, that type of plant, squash. In the end, it's not important. The point is here, you'll notice in verse 6, who appointed the plant? God did. The Lord God appointed this plant. The word that's used there for appointed is the same word used for God appointed the fish in chapter 1, verse 17. So God appointed the plant for Jonah in the same way as he appointed the fish. Now, the plant and the fish are what? Pictures of mercy, right? God appointed mercy for Jonah. This is God's doing. God was going, showing again compassion to Jonah, and Jonah's the grateful recipient of it. He didn't deserve this plant in this shade, he didn't deserve mercy from the heat any more than Nineveh deserved God's mercy. And so now here comes the lesson in verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, notice the word, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint the same word appointed when it came to the compassion of the lord with the great fish and the plant is used for the arrival of destruction god appointed a worm to destroy the plant and appointed a scorching east wind to discomfort Jonah The destruction of the plant coupled with that east wind exposed Jonah to such extreme heat that it would prove unbearable for Jonah. You think about the Santa Ana winds here when it gets hot and the Santa Ana winds blow and everything just becomes dry. Well, when that wind would come over where it's a daily maximum average temperature of 110 degrees, it could reach 126 degrees by that heat blowing in. Here's how one guy uh, I, I read describes... the the wind we're talking about here. He says a scorching east wind is normally called a Sirocco, which means east wind. And he says um, during the period of a Sirocco, the temperature rises steeply, sometimes even climbing during the night, and it remains high about 16 to 22 degrees above the average. At times, every scrap of moisture seems to be extracted from the air so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are peculiarly, peculiarly, I can't say that word, trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest people irritable and fretful and to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. Yes, that happens in the heat. I lived in Fresno for six years. I snapped a lot, it got so hot, so hot there. Anyway, so 110 degrees with the wind, 126 degrees. And so God is demonstrating to Jonah that not only is he free to show compassion and mercy, he is also free to destroy God appointed the plant for mercy and God could take the plant away for judgment. And so Jonah's response is the same as the first time. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? See where God's going here with Jonah? Jonah, do you do well to be angry at mercy for Nineveh? Do you do well to be angry that now I've taken this plant away from you? Are you correct in your judgment of these things, Jonah? God doesn't need to defend himself. He just asks him the question. And this time, Jonah, maybe because of the heat, he responds and says, yes, yes can imagine him in the heat, right? Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He wanted the mercy and compassion of God, but he couldn't accept that God is sovereign also over judgment. And so he becomes angry, and God became wrong in Jonah's eyes and how he handled things. Oh, man, God is so patient. And so here now is the final lesson for Jonah in 10 to 11. It'll be much more quick here. Here is God now having Jonah examine his heart about mercy and about God's judgment, sovereign over both. And now he's going to present Jonah with a little argument, and it's pretty simple. It's an argument for the lesser to the greater. And here's here's the argument, and I'll just walk you quickly through it. And the Lord said in verse 10, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So here's the argument. It's really simple. Jonah, you have pity for a plant that you had no vested interest in. Jonah, you did not plant it. You did not tend to it, you did not care for it, you did not water it, you did not prune it. Jonah, you had no say in whether that plant grew or perished. Jonah, in fact, that plant was so insignificant that it came and it went in less than a day. Very minimal thing, temporary, short-lived. And yet, Jonah, you pity the plant You think the plant should remain because it serves your purpose and desire. See? But what about Nineveh, Jonah? Nineveh, a city full of people and children, a city of souls that I have created and I have cared for, a city full of people who are created in my own image, As well as cattle, Jonah, what about the cattle? Even the cattle I created are more significant than this little plant that you're pitying for your purposes. Should not I have pity on this great city if it serves my purposes and desire? Is it not my sovereign right, Jonah, to destroy and deliver as I see fit? Are you right in your anger toward Nineveh, Jonah? Jonah, can't you see that the inconsistency lies not with me, but with you? That's a humbling thought to consider, isn't it? When we bump up against God's sovereign will to show mercy or to show judgment, to save or to not to save? Do you do well to be angry when it doesn't go your way? Ultimately, we don't know what Jonah's reaction or response was to God's questioning, but here's an interesting thing to remember about Jonah. Who is left with the final word in this book? God is. God is left with the final word, and that is how it should be. A final word that highlights this sovereign right of God. The right to show mercy and the right to judge. And it's interesting to note that this book and the book of Nahum so is it really, I thought this was interesting when I read this. They are the only two biblical books to end with a question. And both books end with a question concerning Nineveh. Did you know that? Isn't that cool? Jonah and Nahum. Jonah ends with the mercy of God toward Nineveh. Do you know how Nahum ends? With the judgment of God upon Nineveh. There's something there. And so, beloved, in Christ, we have to remember that even in the New Testament and in Christ, the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, Christ did not abolish the truth that God is sovereign over mercy and judgment. He solidifies it and Paul in closing brings up the same thing in Romans 9. Are you angry when I chose, choose to show compassion to whom I desire? Romans 9.15 I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Are you angry when I determine to destroy whom I will destroy? Romans 9, 22-23 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? If that upsets you, That God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. Do you do well to be angry? Have you come to terms with what Jonah needed to realize? And that is the theme of the book, which is salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Beloved, how do we respond? Let Jonah be a book of examination for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book and this reminder of how it concludes. A reminder that you are a God of mercy and you are a God the a God of judgment. That, that the salvation of sinners is in your hands and we are no more deserving of your mercy and grace than our neighbor is. But you have shown us mercy freely of your own perfect sovereign will and you have done that without any input from us. We did not demand or require mercy, but you showed it to us freely and you removed judgment from us in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for showing us undeserving sinners that mercy. We also know, Father, that you do bring judgment on sinners according to your perfect plan as well. That even Judas was prepared for destruction. That you even raised up Pharaoh to judge him and to harden his heart as well. And you have done those things rightly. We see many of our friends and sometimes even family perishing in unbelief, but we know ultimately, Lord, that you have a perfect plan in mind for all of that and that you are doing it rightly and and for your glory. Some receive mercy as we have, as Nineveh did, as Jonah did, and some receive judgment. Help us to come to terms with that, Father, and not to be anxious in the midst of thinking about these things, but to remember in our heart that salvation belongs to you and you have shown it to us most graciously. Help us, Father, also to demonstrate that mercy and compassion towards sinners as you save. Father, help us to go about in this world to faithfully proclaim the word that you have called us to proclaim that you might do your work of salvation and even judgment we thank you for Jonah and his example we thank you for your love for us and your patience with us we thank you O God that you are sovereign and that we need not fear but we can rest in you and in your plan We ask that you would bless this word in Jesus' name. Amen.